Good morning. Love to see all that fellowship. How are we all doing? Good. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much, God, for your grace. Father, I thank you for the amazing place that you have created for us, God, the role, not only the place, but the role that you have for us in this world and in the next, God. It is a pretty awesome both responsibility and joy, God, an amazing adventure that you've given us to live out, Lord. And I pray, God, this morning that you would renew in our minds, Father, just how important each of us are, God, just how purposeful you are in putting us here and endowing us, Father, with a role that's just awesome, that's incredible, Lord, that so often I think we can underappreciate. And I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to the call that you have on each of our lives. In your son's name, amen. All right, well, we are continuing in our study of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 14 this morning. The title of the sermon this morning is, Do You Rule? All right, did you hear that? Do you rule? You're, I remember back, for, for some of you younger folks, old school is like the 1990s. For me, old school is like the 50s. But, so I don't know whether to call it old school or not. But remember back in, like, maybe it was around the 80s when everything was so-and-so rules, like popcorn rules, you know, it's just whatever, skateboarding rules, right? And then finally the Christian, you know, pop, pop community starts saying, no, God rules, you know, you pagans, you idol worshipers, it's God who rules, right? So we hear, when I, when I ask that question, do you rule, is not your first kind of gut feeling, is that, well, that sounds kind of fleshy and worldly to think, you know, I rule, I don't rule, God rules. But what does the Bible say about authority? And what does the Bible say about our place and our, and our particular role when it comes to having authority in his creative order? And what does that look like? And how does that go well? And how does that go really, really wrong and really bad? And this morning in Isaiah 14, we get, a, I think, a really clear example of both. So really, the question is not, do you rule? The question is, how do you rule? And kind of to set the stage for this, I want to go right back to the very beginning and establish, okay, what's God's original intent for us? Where are we supposed to be in this whole scheme that he's created, this whole world, this universe that he's created? What's our rule? So I want to go back to Genesis. I'm going all the way to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. In verse 26, starting in verse 26, we're going to read 26 through 31. 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, reference to the Trinity, our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Dominion, that's kind of a word we don't use a lot. What does dominion mean? Dominion means rule, authority, responsibility, an area that you manage. Okay? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God's original intention for us, his creation, is to rule over this earth. Is that awesome? That is like an awesome responsibility. Think about that. You get to, our job, our original job description was to rule over the dolphins and the eagles, 
Those are my particular favorite creatures, right? I, I'm, I'm all up for that. I love, I love the idea of ruling over dolphins or eagles. But we, we are to rule over this whole earth, right? That's God's call on our life, is to rule over this earth. So do you rule? Yes, you rule. You cannot avoid ruling, by the way. It's part of how, who you are. It's how God created you. You rule. You may not know it, or you may not be purposeful about it, and you may rule very horribly, but you rule, okay? God has built you to rule, whether it's over a very small little territory, maybe it's just your own family, maybe it's just your own life, maybe it's just your own ruling over your own heart and mind, but you are a free agent, and you are accountable and responsible. You rule over your mind, over your heart. You have some rule or influence over your family. You have some rule or influence over your coworkers, maybe people you manage, or maybe even people you don't manage. It's not about the title. It's about how you influence and affect other people and how you take care of the world that God's given us. Just continuing on here, verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we are patterned after God. We're, and, and that's, I think, where we're most like God, is that we're patterned over this free agency. Where we have this opportunity to influence and rule over spheres of our life. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. That's a lot of everys, is it not? God has given us every food, every plant, every animal to use, to rule over, to enjoy, right? What a calling God's given to us. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was not only good, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God's saying, look, I made you to rule over my creation. And my creation, as we just sung, is incredibly beautiful and glorious and amazing. And, you're, and you ruling over that is very good. It's a very good thing, right? But our world has been so corrupted and our lives have been so wounded. We so, and particularly by the abuse of authority and power, that we tend to think in terms of uh, ruling and, and, and having dominion as being a really negative thing. <laughs> John's working on ruling over the sound system. We'll see, we'll see how successful he is. <laughs> There's limits to our rule, right, John? Some things that, you know, sometimes the wires just don't do what we want them to do. Appreciate y'all bearing with that. So do you rule? Yes, you rule. The question is, do you, do you rule well or do you rule poorly? Another way to state this and, and the kind of two questions that I'm going to be focusing on throughout this whole message is, do you rule as a ransom saint or do you rule as a satanic tyrant? Right? And, and by the way, when I say it that way, I'm not saying there's two distinct categories that you're either completely and always all the time ruling as a ransom saint or you're always all the time ruling as a satanic tyrant. We're a mixed bucket, right? Paul says 
the spirit wages war against the flesh, and the flesh wages a war against the spirit. We're in this tension. And sometimes we rule more like a ransom saint, and sometimes we rule more like a satanic tyrant. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go down this passage and see what are the characteristics of either or. And the challenge for each of us is to ask ourselves, you know, Lord, where in my life am I ruling more like a ransom saint? Where in my life am I ruling like this, this satanic tyrant? Make sense? All right, let's go. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 1. How are we doing? Can you hear me okay? Yeah? Okay. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the people will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess, the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule and rule over those who oppress them. Let's just stop right there. So Isaiah has been a vessel of uh, speaking these oracles to Israel, to, to Judah particularly, about, hey, you know what? We're all, you're going to be overcome by Babylon. You're going to be taken into captivity. You're going to be in exile. But that's the bad news, right? But the good news one day you're going to be returned back. The king of Babylon is going to be overcome, and you're going to be returned back to your own land. And it's interesting, by the way, none of this has happened yet. And we were talking with the men's group that Mike mentioned Saturday morning. We were talking about, well, why would God be telling up front beforehand, why would he be telling them, hey, you are going into exile, but I'm going to bring you back. I think the answer to that question is because they need to have that encouragement, do they not? They know that they're about to be overrun by Babylon. It's going to be a horrific, horrible thing. They're going to be in exile, but they need some encouragement that long-term, ultimately, they're going to be returned to their own land. So this, I think this little paragraph here is given to them as a word of encouragement. Hey, don't despair. Things can get really tough. Things are going to get really tough. But you know what? I'm going to bring you back to your own land, and at some point you are going to rule over those who oppress you. So what are the earmarks here of, in this paragraph of what it means to rule as a ransom saint? Number one, verse one, has the Lord had compassion on you? Notice it starts by saying, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel. You want to know whether or not you rule as a ransom saint? The first question is, have you been ransomed? Has the Lord had compassion on you? Do you recognize that Jesus died on the cross to ransom you from sin, to ransom you from the tyranny, the tyranny of ruling as a satanic tyrant? That's what he died for, is to ransom you from that so that you can rule as a ransom saint. Do you recognize that? Have you experienced that? Do you know that? Every one of us have a different experience with that. Some of us are like, you know, hell on wells, and then boom, we hit the wall like Paul did on the road to Damascus, and we're confronted with the, with the truth and grace and love of Christ, and we're converted, and three years later, we're pastoring a church, right? That's maybe some of our experience, right? 
And the other end of the spectrum is, you know what, They're, through a process of, of thinking about it and evaluating and reading and studying, you kind of come to the conclusion, you know what, I think, I think the claims of Christianity are true. I think it's based on a historical reality and fact. I put my faith and hope in Christ, and then gradually over time, I'm just learning how to become more and more of a ransom state and less and less of a satanic tyrant, right? That's some of our experience. So it doesn't matter what your experience is. The question is, do you know that you've been ransomed? Do you know the compassion and love of Christ? And if your answer is, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure I know that, then it's time to know that. It's time to say, hey, you know what, Lord? I need help. I think I'm, I think I'm a tyrant, you know? I need to confess to you my sins and receive your forgiveness and walk this life as a saint. Not in perfection, none of us are there, right? But in the progress of becoming more and more like a ransom saint. So number one, do you know the compassion of the Lord? Number two, do you know that he's chosen you? I remember thinking when I first really sort of recommitted my life to Christ, I felt like, you know, I'd really made the decision. I had really done some study, I'd done some research, I really reaffirmed, you know, the claims of Christ, and I decided, okay, Lord, I'm going to follow you. Like that song, I have decided to follow Jesus, right? It's like, that was my testimony. But the longer I go in my walk, the more and more I say, you know what, I didn't choose Christ, Christ chose me. You know, if Christ hadn't chose me, I would still be this clueless tyrant destroying people's lives without, what, with no understanding at all. So the question is, as you look back on your life, do you see or recognize that Christ has chosen you, that you belong to him? You are a Christian because he chose you. And that's a reassuring thing, is it not? Because it doesn't depend on you, ultimately. It depends on him. So has he chosen you? The other question coming out of verse 1, Isaiah says, and will... God will, let me just read the whole thing. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them on their own land. Have you had a glimpse of that? Do you understand that you are headed to a promised land? Do you have some inkling, some understanding that this life is, is not the ultimate thing? It's not about this life ultimately? If you've been chosen by Christ, if you've experienced his compassion, it's not ultimately about this life. It's about the promised land. We're in exile. In case you don't know it, we live in Babylon today, and we are in exile. This world, this world system is under the influence of Satan. It's a satanic, tyrannical system, and we are in exile in it. But we are headed to our promised land. That promised land is the new heavens and the new earth when all things will be made new and all of sin will be removed, do you have some inkling that you're living for that promised land and not for this life? If you do, if you have some sense of that understanding, you're going to be much more better at ruling as a ransom saint and much less likely to rule as a satanic tyrant. Because what is a satanic tyrant about? They're about grabbing whatever it is, grabbing power, grabbing wealth for, for the here and for the now. But the call of Christ to take up your cross and follow him means, you know what? It's not about this life. 
ultimately. It's about the promised land. That's what I'm living for. So have you had a glimpse of the promised land? Verse 2, And the people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captives those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. Are you, do you approach life in a winsome way? Do you win, do you, are you the kind of person that people actually want to be around? Does a sojourner want to hang out with you? Do people want to go where you're going? Are they, even though they may not be into the same thing you're into, but there's just something about you that draws people, Right? And I'm not talking about being popular. You know, some of us have the gift of, of being very charismatic and drawing a crowd and yada, yada, yada. I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about, you know what? Do you have a level of authenticity? Do you have a level of genuineness? Do you have credibility to the point where people go, you know what? There's something about this person that I just want to be around, right? I want to look to, I want to get some of whatever they have. As you look back on your life, as you look at your day-to-day experience, do you, do you see that? Do you see any evidence of that? And again, some of us might go, no, I don't see any evidence of that. I must not be saved, right? But I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about the perfect example of that. You know, none of, not all of us are going to be Billy Grahams, okay? <laughs> right? But are you on a path of becoming more and more accessible to people, more and more winsome to people, more and more available for people that, that want to draw from you and, and learn what you know, right? If you understand and are a ransom saint, you should see some evidence of that growing in your life, making progress in that area. Has the Lord given you influence? That really goes to the credibility question. You know, do, do people, and again, I'm not talking about your title, but do you have, is there a tendency for people to want to come to you and get counsel from you? Is there a tendency that people go, oh, you know what, this person, I just, I, tr- I have a trust with them. They seem to be authentic. They seem to be a reasonable person. They seem to, to be someone that, that can speak honestly and truthfully and with love in a way that I can kind of trust what they say. And what does that do? That creates influence. That means you begin to rule. You have this way of, of having influence on the people around you because you're, you're so credible, right? The men have been going through a leadership class with Robert, and, one of the, and we're using this book by John MacArthur. And John MacArthur is using an example of leadership. He's using Paul as an example when he gets shipwrecked in the Mediterranean. And Jonathan MacArthur makes a great point. He, he says, you know, Paul is not a seaman. He's nowhere in the hierarchy of this crew. He's just, he's actually, a, he's a passenger on the ship. He's actually a, a captive and prisoner on this ship, right? So he's like on the lowest rung of the ladder on the ship. But as they go through this process of trying to make it through the Mediterranean during the off-season of the year, gradually, because Paul has... Builds so much credibility, and because God 
Paul has God's spirit operating in him, and Paul's able to say, hey, this is not a good idea. We shouldn't win her here. We should go do this. And then as he's saying this, these things are coming to pass. The whole crew begins to really turn to Paul, including the centurion, who is a leader, right? Turns to Paul for guidance and direction as the, as the story progresses to the point where by the time they shipwreck, they're all just looking to Paul and going, yes, sir, let's just do whatever he says because he seems to know what's going on here. And, and, and Paul had no, no title in that scenario, but he has so much credibility that he's ruling over this group of people in this very powerful way. And I think as we give ourselves to the Lord, as we are thinking forward to the promised land, as we put our hope and trust and faith in him, people begin to see that, oh, you know what? This person doesn't have an agenda. They don't need something from me. They're not working me. They're actually just genuine people that have some insight that I can kind of go to and get counsel from. And that begins to build this sphere of rule, of dominion, does it not? So that's a question. If, are, do you rule as a ransom saint? Well, do you have influence over people? Not from your title, but from just your character and who you are. And lastly, has the Lord given you rest? Notice verse 3 says, When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And we're going to go into that next. But have you experienced some level of rest? Now, in this world, as Jesus said, in this world we'll have tribulation. But take heart because I've overcome this world. So yes, we are going to have turmoil. We're going to have stress. We're going to have all these things going on in our lives. It's a tough life. But do you have moments of rest? Do you have moments where you can kind of go, oh, you know what? God's in control. You know, I don't have to fix all this. I can't pull all this together. So much of this is beyond my domain, beyond my ability to rule. But you know what? I can rest in the ultimate king, right? I've subjugated myself to the king, and he does have dominion over everything, and I can trust that, and I can rest in that, right? I can even see some of you who've gone through recent trauma. I can see you shaking your head like, yeah, I, that's, that's been huge for me as I've gone through this trial, this trauma, that I know that Christ is the ultimate ruler. So if you see those things, if you can answer to some one degree or another in the affirmative for each one of those, then to one degree or another, you are ruling as a ransom saint. And I want to encourage you to be purposeful about that, to push into that, to grow that, to develop that. All right? But what about when we rule as a satanic tyrant? That's what we get into in the rest of this whole passage. So let's go for it. Starting in where I just left off in verse 4. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Okay, so... God is saying, look, you're going to go into captivity, but there's going to come a day when you're going to be released from the captivity. You're going to be returned to your own land, and you'll be able to say to this king who oppressed you the following. And, and just to kind of get a sense of, of this literature here, this is poetic literature. It's also laid out in a way that kind of is like a funeral dirge. If you were a Hebrew and you were reading in the original language, you would kind of understand this, this oracle as, as sort of a, a eulogy at a, at a, what do you call it? 
I, yeah, where you're saying goodbye to someone who's passed on <laughs> at a funeral. Thank you. So, but in this case, it's, sar- it's very sarcastic. It's very like they're having a funeral for the king of Babylon and saying, ha, 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 you're not our king anymore. In fact, actually, you've gone to the grave. Too bad for you, right? It's kind of sarcastic that way. But as we go through it, I think we see a really clear example of when and how and the ways in which we can sometimes rule as a satanic tyrant. So let's take a look. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. So the first question is, do you try and control and rule over people by force? And when I say by force, that can be very overt physical force, but it can also be very sort of manipulative, backdoor kind of force. So are you always trying to manipulate things? Are you always trying to kind of get people to do what you want to do to serve what? To serve ultimately serve yourself through guilt tripping them or putting the fear of God in them or by just directly you know, manhandling them or physically threatening people? That's what tyrants do. That's how they amass control. That's how they exercise dominion over people through just straight up brute force. Think about all the great tyrants of history, you know, Mussolini, Franco of Spain, Hitler, you know, the, the late 20th century examples. All those guys are all about force and ruling with the iron fist and controlling people for their good, for their sake, not at all, for their own egos, for their own good, for their own building their own monument to themselves. Isn't it interesting how often tyrants build monuments to themselves? We'll get to that in a moment. I'm getting ahead of myself. But who's it about? Right? That's, a good, that's a good question to ask. Who's this about? As I'm trying to exercise authority over a situation, over a person, what is my purpose in that? You know, Am I controlling them for my sake? Or am I trying to serve them? Am I trying to use the gifts that God has given me to serve them and grow them and help them? Right? So the first question is, do you try and control and rule over people by force? And, and really, what is your motive in that? Verse 7, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Verse 8, the cypress rejoice, rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes upon up against us. So the land's gone into rest because the king of Babylon is destroyed. So here's the question for verse 7. Do people rejoice when you leave the room? Is there like a collective, ah, we can re- relax now, now that so-and-so has left the room? I had a boss that was, that was exactly that. When she left the room, everybody, you could, just, you could feel the oxygen kind of come back into the room and people kind of breathe, could breathe again. I mean, she was such a tyrant, <laughs> just a tyrant. And, and we have to ask ourselves, you know what? Are we so overbearing on people? Are we so pushing them, not for their sake, not for the sake of the mission of whatever the organization is, but just for our own egos, our own satisfaction? Do people feel 
relieved and less stressed when you're not there? Right? And that's a hard question to answer because most of us, especially who are really in this deeply, don't know it because everybody's too afraid to call them out on it. Right? If you've ever had a tyrannical boss who seems to have survived in the organization for any period of time, that's usually because everyone's afraid to call them out. So everybody just seizes up and gets all tight and tense until they leave, and then everybody goes, oh, man. But that person never knows it because no one ever confronts them. No one ever speaks the truth to them in love. And one of the things that we, always, we talk a lot about in this congregation is, you know what? We are called to speak the truth in love. And if there's someone who is just ruling like a satanic tyrant, we need to, in love, go to that person and say, hey, you know what? You, you come off in a way that is just really destructive for people or really intimidating to people, you know? And love them that way. They need to hear it, right? Maybe get a friend. If it's a really tough tyrant, then get, you know, get reinforcement. But there's a whole prescription for that, and that's a whole other sermon. But if you have an issue with somebody, go to that person. Make it right with them. If you can't make it right with them, go get someone who's a neutral witness and bring them into it and say, hey, no, this is really a problem. If they still don't see it, then you involve the church leadership. Okay, And that's how we roll. But the key point here is examining your own life Do people rejoice when you leave the room? Do people feel better when you're not there? You probably don't know. If if you're that person or that, that, that man or that woman, you probably don't know it. So it might be if you're, hmm, am I that person? Maybe ask somebody, hey, how am I, you know? Am I over, am I a little too controlling, overbearing? Ask the question. Because that's a hard one to know about ourselves. Verse 8, does the landscape rest when you leave the room? Kind of the same idea. I'm not going to dwell on that one. Verse 9, Sheol, Sheol, beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come down. Okay, so again, this is talking about the king of Babylon, right? Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from the thrones. All who were kings of the nations. So, this is, this, again, this is sort of this taunt, this, this funeral taunt, and they're saying to the king of Babylon, guess what? Uh, it's so sad. We're so sorry. You're going to the grave. Too bad. So sad. You've been such an awful, horrible person. We're really not going to shed a tear, okay? And, and they're saying, you know, they're saying, hey, king Babylon, enjoy the reception that death is going to give you. And here's the thing about ty- being a tyrant. Sooner or later... Death is coming for you. It's coming for all of us, right? It goes to my earlier point. What are we living for? If it's all about this life, it's coming to an end. Death is coming. And so here it's being used as a taunt to this king who thought he would live forever, that he would be the king of the universe forever. But guess what? His days are ended. Verse 10, all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of of your harps. (laughs) Look at this imagery. Maggots are laid as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. It's like a horror movie, right? But it's like so descriptive of death. It's like, you think you're so great and high and mighty? Your bed is 
awful. You said in your heart. And so, just real quick, the question here is, will your death be a party? Are people going to rejoice at your death? What will people say about you after you've gone, passed away and gone? Over the past couple of years, Donna and I have had so many family funerals and, and our friend's funeral. And at a funeral, you always think, man, it's too bad this person's not here, here right now hearing all of this, right? Just the amazing ways that they impacted our lives. It's, like, it's an encouragement to me to share more while people are still with us. And say, hey, by the way, do you know what kind of blessing you are to me? And I encourage you to do the same thing. When someone's a blessing to you, don't miss the opportunity. Because one day, they won't be here. And you might regret, oh, man, I wish I had pulled them aside and said, you know what? You're amazing. You're an amazing parent to me. You're an amazing friend to me. You know? I encourage you to do that. Don't miss the opportunity to do that. But will your death be a party? Will they say, ding dong, the witch is dead, you know? <laughs> I mean, for most of us, probably not. But on some level, is there some, you know, what are you living? What's your, what's your legacy going to be? Is it generally mostly constructive and positive, an amazing impact to the people around you? Or is it mostly you're just a big burden, just a big suck hole that sucked the life out of people? If you kind of lean more that way, then maybe you're more of a satanic tyrant than a ransom saint in terms of the way that you rule. Continuing on, verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will set on, on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man you ma- who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? Let's just stop there. So here's the question. Are you obsessed with building monuments to yourself? Is the world a stage and you are its center? Right? The, the king of Babylon so exalted himself, literally said to himself, uh, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heavens above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reach of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will make myself like God. Right? That's the king of Babylon. That's what he's saying to himself. By the way, we've often said as we've gone through these prophetic books, God is incredibly efficient when he does prophecy. He can chew gum and walk at the same time. He can, when he does these prophecies, he's speaking to multiple levels. So is this talking about the king of Babylon? Yes. In the context is he's talking, talking about the Bab- king of Babylon. But do you hear an echo of somebody else in, these, in this passage? Even this phrase, I will make myself like the most high. Remember the temptation of Satan to Eve in the garden? Right after God has said, you know what, you have dominion, everything is awesome and great, Satan comes along and tempts Eve, and what does he say to her? You know what, did God really say, don't eat of the fruit? Actually, God knows that if you eat of it, you will be like him. 
you will ascend and be like the most high. Right? Same concept here, same idea. So this is an oracle against the king of Babylon, but it's simultaneously and it's also an oracle against Satan himself. Right? God is killing two birds with one word here. He is addressing the king of Babylon, but he's also addressing Satan, who inspires the king of Babylon, who the king of Babylon has patterned himself after. And that's an important principle. The reason we will rule as a satanic tyrant is because of the influence of Satan, the influence of the satanic world system on our lives that says, me first. Make America great again. Right? I mean, I don't mean to get too political, but is that our ultimate mission in life, is to make America great again? Or does God call us to something different than that? I'm not opposed to, God, to America being great and being used, and America has been great and has been used incredibly by God. It, he, I think the Lord used America to save the world from itself in 1940. Right? So I'm a patriot, all right? But what's the kingdom we are living for? What is the ultimate kingdom we're living for? And the real question is, who are we living for? Are we living for ourselves, or are we living for the Lord? And the quickest path to a satanic tyranny is to operate constantly and always from the selfish motive. Not that you shouldn't take care of yourself. Not that you have a responsibility to take care of your own affairs. You do, and there's a passage that we'll get to that talks about that. But is that the sole object of your life? the only focus of your life. Continuing again, just want to point out here, in verse 14, he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you stare at you and ponder over you. I just wanted to make one more point about the satanic influence here. Going back, and I think I might have even skipped over it. Uh, verse 11, your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your, of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Okay, O day star, son of dawn, that can be translated as Lucifer, Okay. So this is a direct reference to Satan himself. So again, this is, and, and, and I noticed this as we've gone through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, that God will speak through Isaiah in a way where Isaiah kind of starts by speaking to the specific historical situation. But then like an airplane going down a runway, it begins to lift up above that specific historical situation and addresses the bigger, larger picture. And the same thing happens here. It starts off addressing the king of Babylon, but then that starts lifting up to the bigger issue, which is Satan himself. So this is God saying to Satan, will you ascend to heaven? No, you have fallen. You have fallen from the the highest possible place in all of creation, which Lucifer was as a created being. He was a created angel who was given special gifts highest possible created position, and you have fallen to the darkest, deepest reach of the pit. 
That's about as extreme as you can go, right? So the king of Babylon, yeah, he was the king of Babylon that had a certain high level to it, and he has fought, he will fall to a to a pretty deep dark level. But that's just that's just sort of a the wrapper around this massive fall that Lucifer, Satan himself, has made, right? So this is what that's what what is being addressed here. And that's what any, any satanic tyrant has waiting for them. As I said earlier, um, it's interesting that tyrants tend to make monuments to themselves. They tend to make statues to themselves. And what has happened to every one of those statues? Even going back to uh, one of the kings of Babylon made this giant golden statue of himself. Is it still here today? It's gone. Think about... What's the, uh, the, who's the guy who was running Iraq before we invaded? Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein. Big statue of himself, right? What was the, one of the first things to happen once, once the U.S. went into Baghdad? They hooked up a big giant tractor thing to that statue and ripped it down. So the question is, do you make, is, are you investing your time and your resources in building some sort of statue to yourself? And I'm telling you, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of money because that statue is going to just crumble the moment you pass from this earth, if, if it even exists in the first place. All right, so I want to wrap up here. He continues in this oracle in verse 20. He says, you will not, not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evil do, evildoers never more be named. So what he's saying is, not only are you going to die, but you're going to have this very ignoble death. You're, you're not going to be remembered. You're not going to be lie in state in the Capitol building. Instead, you're just going to be a dead body somewhere, um, and you'll have no inheritance. 21, prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers. These say, rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and, I'm, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant. Notice that. He's going to cut off name and remnant. Contrast that with the people of Israel. Contrast that with people, the people of God. People of God, we, we got, the, the Lord loves us enough to discipline us, but he always leaves a remnant. Right? We may go through trials. We may go through tribulation. We may be under the discipline of the Lord, but there's a promised land. We're going to be restored we will be restored. Even in the worst situation, what God has for his people is restoration and a return to that promised land, just like the people of Israel. Even though they're going to Babylon, God is promising them, hey, look, I'm putting you under discipline right now, but understand there's going to be a remnant and you will be restored. But for the satanic tyrants of the world, there's no remnant. There's no restoration. There's no hope. There's no coming back. Right? There's no coming back for Hitler or Saddam Hussein. And all those things that we've expressed that really come from more of a place of that satanic tyrant, there's no fruit that will come. That's just wasted time, wasted energy, wasted resources. Right? So let's focus on how can we rule as a ransom saint that our time, our investment, our resources will result in fruit that echoes throughout, alternate, throughout all of eternity in the promised land that we're headed for, that we're living for, right? 
I want to uh, wrap up with, with a few quotes from Revelation. And, and you know, the, God is encouraging them, them being the, the children of Israel, Jacob, with the fact that, hey, I'm going to return you to your land. And God continues to do that right through the New Testament with those of us who've put our hope and faith and trust in him. Hey, this life is tough. You are living in Babylon. You are in exile right now. But there is a promised land that you are going to, that I'm going to restore you to one day. And that's where our hope and our joy and, and, and really where our focus ought to be. And, and, and the way I wanted to wrap this up, in Revelation, in, in, the first, in the second and third chapter, there's a series of letters that God writes to seven churches. Can you imagine being one of those churches where Jesus personally writes a letter to Renaissance Church and he says, okay, Renaissance Church, this is where you're doing great and this is what I have against you, right? It'd be like, ooh, me. <laughs> It'd be kind of intense for the elder board. All right, what does, God have, what does the Lord have against us? But he goes through each one of these churches and most of them, he corrects, you know, he's, he has a correction for him. There's a couple of them where he has actually no correction. He said, you're just doing great. Good job, right? But for every one of them, whether they need correction or not, he finishes each letter exactly the same way by saying, to those who conquer. Another way to say that is to those who rule. To those who rule like ransom saints. This is what I promise you. And I'm just going to read through these briefly starting in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, I think I'm in the wrong spot. I am totally in the wrong spot. <laughs> See, Mike? I do it too, right from the pulpit. I don't know, brother. Not, per- not perfect, but progress, right? We haven't attained to perfection yet, but we're working at it. Okay, Revelation 2, if I can just get myself there. 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Isn't it interesting that he starts out right there? Well, was, where did we start this whole message? We started in the garden of paradise, right? And God has given them dominion to rule over this amazing, beautiful paradise. And Satan comes and tempts them to eat from the tree of knowledge. Notice that God never told them, hey, don't eat from the tree of life. They could have eaten from the tree of life and lived forever. But they didn't. Instead, they chose rebellion. They, they chose their own godhood, wanting to make themselves like God, right? To get control over their own life, independent, revolutionaries. But they could have chosen the tree of life and lived forever and ruled, ironically, ruled, had dominion over this paradise. But instead, they chose to be satanic tyrants. But ironically, for us, who have have confessed Christ and submitted ourselves to him, when the day is coming when we will be given that chance to eat from the tree of life, we will live forever in the promised land. Revelation 2.11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That means you're not going to hell. That's a good thing, amen? Revelation 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That means you're going to be provided for. Forever you will have a full square, square meal, every meal, right? And I mean that both you know, in terms of food, but I mean that in every sense. You'll have all of what you need. You will be full, content, always. Is that not a good life to live out eternity in? That's what Jesus promises us who are ransomed saints and rule like that. Revelation 2.26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give, give authority. No, catch this. To him I will give authority over the nations. Do you rule? You're going to rule. You do rule in a small way. You're going to rule in a big way. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you authority over the nations. Okay? You rule. As ransomed saints, you rule. Revelation 3.5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. That means you're going to be made perfectly righteous. You'll be in white garments. You'll, every thought will be a good thought, will be a pure thought. You'll never have this wrestle this war that wages inside each one of us between the spirit and the flesh, that war will be settled finally, once and for all. And everything you think of will be full go, awesome, right on, go for it, whatever you can imagine and think of. Jesus will say yes to everything you think. Think about that. Verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the, city of, and the name of the city of my God. We will be so closely identified with God. We'll be a pillar in his household, right? And then finally, Revelation 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Think about that. Do you rule? One day you're going to sit with Christ on his throne. That's the highest throne in the universe. Jesus is literally saying, hey, I'm going to slide over a little bit and, let, and have you sit right next to me on my throne. That's some heavy-duty authority, is it not? So yes, do you rule? The answer is yes. The question is, how do you rule? Do you rule as a ransom saint? Or do you rule as a satanic tyrant? And the answer is, well, sometimes I do this, sometimes I do that. Lord God, help me to grow and rule more as a ransom saint and less and less as a satanic tyrant. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your grace, Father. We thank you for your love for us, your willingness to correct us, God, and most importantly, just the awesome opportunity that you have given us, God, as free agents to rule under you, under your authority, and over your creation. Father, help us to grow in that way, Lord. Help us to serve you in the way that we interact with a broken and fallen world. In your son's name, amen.